Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication and certainly leading us before the throne of grace and power and remembering those individuals who lost their lives this week and those tragic shootings in Dallas and other parts of the country. We need to be mindful of that. Thank you so much. I enjoy all the singing that we do to, uh, in our worship time. There's some beautiful songs of praise and worship to the Lord. I, uh, as an older member of the congregation, I particularly liked one of the oldie goldies we pulled out. Uh, Heaven Came Down. Hadn't sung that one in quite a while. And that's a peppy little song. And I remember listening to that on the radio and singing along. And so all of that. Thank you, Pastor Mark and Sister Amy, for leading us and praising the Lord in, in music like that. You know, I think about the blessing of just knowing that I'm going to heaven one day. And living with that assurance every moment. And, and what a great peace that gives to me. I don't take that for granted and the fact that I also, my heart breaks for individuals who go through life or living day by day without that assurance. And you know, it's, some, it's something that we really need to make sure that we stress as Christians because our society is so misguided when it comes to the topic of heaven. So many people think that heaven is automatically a default for everybody. Eventually, after you go through life, you, you somehow, some way, you'll you end up in heaven. Because after all, God's good and loving and all of that. And that's not the truth. It's not biblical. You know, Jesus made it quite clear in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. And few are those that go this way that leads to eternal life. In contrast, He said that the road that leads to destruction is broad. It's easy. And there are many who are traveling on that road. Just taking the teachings of the Son of God, folks, tells us that the vast majority of the people that you see, that you interact with, and people around the world, the vast majority will leave this world into a terrible place of darkness and pain and suffering and torment and judgment, separated from the presence of God forever and ever and ever. That's why we tell people the truth. That's why we tell people that the Bible says we're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the penalty of sin is death. Not physical death. Death comes certainly. But eternal separation from God. In that place called hell. And yet the Bible tells us there in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 also that the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord for passages like Romans 10, 9 and 10 that tells us if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Praise the Lord that the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, salvation is coming to the realization that, that the truth of the fact that the Bible says about sin and us being sinners applies to you, to me. And being able to experience the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that makes you aware of that great deficit in your life, a need for salvation. And the reality that God gives us faith to believe 
To believe that Jesus Christ indeed is the only begotten Son of God. To believe that He came into this world and gave His life on that cross to pay the price for your sins. And as a result of that convicting power of the Spirit and the faith that God gives you to believe in Jesus Christ. To make a life changing commitment to say I'm turning my back on sin and my sinful ways, sinful thoughts, this sinful world. And I'm turning to God. And I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And He will lead me for the rest of my life. I make a commitment to be obedient to His Word. Not perfect. There are none perfect. But a true follower of Christ is just that. It's a person who daily follows Jesus Christ. And takes their marching orders from Him. And those are the ones who can live with that wonderful assurance of knowing the reward that comes to those who are followers of Christ is the privilege of living forever, eternally, in the presence of God in a glorious place called heaven. We got our first question in the pastor's question box. That's out there in the information center about heaven. And this is the question. It's a good question. Why does the popular culture think heaven, or think of heaven, as fat baby angels playing a harp and resting on clouds? How did we get here? Well, because of soft cloud toilet paper commercials. (laughs) And some of those light food commercials that portray, you know, Now I'll tell you in in a nutshell three basic reasons why we are here. That's the thinking of the culture around us. Number one, biblical illiteracy. You would just be absolutely amazed at how many people have never read the Bible, don't understand the Scriptures, and so they take their cues from the popular culture, from movies, from books, from false testimonies and false religions. So biblical illiteracy and then humanistic thinking where man is the center of his universe and so naturally you want to tailor heaven to to appease us and then absolute poor theology. So it's interesting. That question ties into the gist of the message today because we're going to look at some of the unbiblical notions about heaven. Unbiblical notions about heaven. And there are plenty, folks. I'll tell you that. Dr. John MacArthur, in his book that he wrote, The Glory of Heaven, illustrated that. He, he focused on a, a German poem that's written from a child's perspective about heaven. And, and the name of the poem, and by the way, a famous German musical was written and developed around that. It was entitled The Heavenly Life. And the author of this child's poem on heaven portrayed the the inhabitants of of heaven as all being voracious carnivores. And and Herod was a butcher who butchered innocent lambs and, and so that all of heaven's inhabitants could have all the lamb that they wanted. And and it also the oxen were so numerous that Luke was a chef and he's preparing all these cows and oxen without giving it a thought, so that everybody would have plenty to eat. The poem portrays people in heaven as as jumping and skipping and singing, but mostly gorging themselves. 
Now, I've talked to people that say, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can eat anything I want. Well, granted, we're going to have feast in heaven, and, and there are going to be, there's going to be plenty to eat in heaven, no doubt about that. But it's not all about eating. And if you're a golfer, it's not all about golf. Or fisher, fisherman, fishing, or whatever you're... Uh, you see, from a humanistic mindset, we tend to try to shape heaven to fit us. Thinking that heaven is really all about meeting our earthly appetites and indulging ourselves. When folks, the Bible makes it very clear that heaven is about God. It's God-centered. It's about worshiping God and serving God, fellowshiping. God is the center of heaven just like He needs to be the center of the life of the believer here on earth. Now, another misconception that sometimes people have about heaven, and I've even heard some people, I've read some people say, I, I don't want to go to heaven. It's boring. Who wants to sit around on a cloud and strum a harp and, 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 and do that forever? I'd rather go to hell with some of my friends who, who have, at least they're going to be partying and having fun. Folks, both concepts are absolutely false and unbiblical. Number one, there won't be any partying going on in, he in hell. There won't be any fun going on in hell. People will not have fellowship in hell. They'll be isolated in torment, separated from God and from others forever in darkness and pain. And listen, heaven is not boring. Not when you read the Scriptures, not when you examine the Word of God and you see what is portrayed. Heaven is not a boring place to live. Listen to what... Don Stewart said in his book, Heaven, the Final Destination for Believers, he said, the, he said the, the, the biblical description of heaven is one of action, not inaction. We will be serving the Lord in various capacities. Christians will be engaged in judging the world and, and angels. But not only that, he goes on to say that Christians will be involved in, in serving God actively and ruling as Jesus portrayed in Luke's Gospel chapter 19 in that parable of the talents. Listen, heaven is going to be about activity. So you can understand people that are living in this world from a humanistic perspective, they're thinking about heaven. They, they, they have a wrong notion about sin. So many people think about sin as being fun. So if you go to heaven and there's no sin, then there can't be any fun. Folks, that's not what the Scripture portrays. Let me just share with you out of Psalms. Psalm 16. You know, the, word, the, the psalmist puts it so succinctly in verse 11 of Psalm 16. The psalmist says, talking to God, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. So in heaven there, there is, there's great joy. The writer of Ecclesiastes, maybe he was being sarcastic in chapter 7, talking about in life in general, but he nailed the truth in chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes verse 1. He says, the day of one's death is better than the day of his birth. Listen, there's nothing to compare. Life on this earth, I don't care how good it is. I don't care how pleasurable it might be from time to time. There's no comparison 
to the level of joy and peace and contentment and excitement that awaits us when we are there in the presence of the Lord. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It only gets better for the believer. But you see, as Randy Alcorn pointed out, faulty philosophical thinking like Christoplatonism, which was an attempt by the early church to borrow from the philosophical teachings of Plato and blend it into Christianity. And that was disastrous because it portrayed heaven as being uh, you know, boring because it, if, if sin is good and enjoyable and exciting, then holiness must be boring. So that's where people began to get this idea that and when you go to heaven, you just kind of exist in. And that's not... It's not what the Bible teaches. Heaven is a place where we dwell in the presence of God. And let me remind you, our Heavenly Father is the one who created humor. He's the one who gave us wit. He's the one that generates excitement. There in heaven there will be adventure and joy and fulfillment because heaven is centered around God. Some other false notions that people have when it comes to the idea of heaven... Is the idea of, of soul sleep. The, you know, people have taught down through the ages that when a person di- dies, that their soul goes to sleep with the body in the, in the grave. And folks, that's not biblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's actually theology that was passed down by non-canonical writings of the early church and then more recently adopted by the Seventh-day Adventists. Who would have you to believe this idea that your soul is asleep? And they they misinterpret passages like in Matthew 27, after Jesus was crucified, there in verse 52. You may recall, after Jesus gave up his spirit and died uh, there on the cross, it tells us in Matthew's gospel there in chapter 27, verse 52, that that the bodies of, of, of some of the dead saints came up out of the grave. And it describes those saints as sleeping, those who were sleeping. Or they'll take the passage in John chapter 11, in verse 11, when Jesus received news that his dear friend Lazarus had died. Jesus referred to, he's asleep, he's sleeping. And then in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says to the church at at Thessalonica, I would not have you to be ignorant, my brethren, about those who have fallen asleep. The Scripture doesn't teach that when you die, your soul sleeps. In each one of those references, take for instance the reference in Matthew 27, when the, when the bodies of the, of the saints who were asleep came up out of the graves. Folks, the Scripture clearly teaches that it is the physical body that sleeps. When you're buried and you're in the in the grave, it's your body that is inactive and in fact returns back to dust, the Scripture tells us. But it's the physical body that sleeps. The Scripture teaches in contrast that a person's soul is eternal and lives and goes from this world, from the body, for the believer into the presence of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians In chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our physical bodies don't go to heaven right away. Our souls are. 
Our conscience, our personality, the, the, the part of us that is alive, that lives within our physical shell, departs from the body. But it doesn't sleep. It's fully awake and it's alert and conscious and aware. Not only for the believer is that true, that the soul continues to live, but it's also true, tragically, for the unbeliever. Because an unbeliever, when he dies, or she, their body, of course, sleeps in the grave. But their soul, fully conscious, fully aware, fully sensitive to pain, as we see in Jesus' teaching of, in, in Luke 16, of the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man's soul departed from his body instantly. He went into a place of, of, of torment called Hades, where he was in absolute pain and agony. He wasn't sleeping. His soul wasn't sleeping. You go back and read the Westminster Confession of Faith and you'll see this very doctrine supported that, that dis, debunks the idea of soul sleep. Another false notion that somehow has made its way down through the ages in, in Christianity is the doctrine of purgatory. The idea that's promoted by Catholicism and has been for centuries, after you die, people's souls go to a temporary holding place, a place of, of suffering, where they finish earning their righteousness through works and through penance paid to the, the church's coffers. Of course, this was a very slick scheme by the early church, the Roman Catholic Church back in those dark days to, to, to coerce people to give money to the church. That's how the Roman Catholic Church became so absolutely powerful and so rich. Because if you had a, 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 an uncle that was a scoundrel and he had died and you knew he was in purgatory suffering, it was going to take a whole lot of money to get Uncle Harry out of purgatory. Everybody knew what a scoundrel he was. So you paid it to the church and you kept paying until somehow you thought, okay, surely this ought to, ought to you know, rectify the problem and, and, and this ought to earn him righteousness to go on to heaven, folks. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. You see, the Catholic Church has always stood in opposition to the clear teachings of the Apostle Paul and others on the doctrine of justification by faith. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not by works. So if it's a religious system that is built on works salvation righteousness by works, then you can understand why they would, they would reject the teachings of Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where Paul says, for by grace are you saved not of your, through faith, not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. If there was such a place as purgatory, dear friends, go back to that scene on the cross in Luke's Gospel when Jesus was hanging there and, and the thief professed faith in the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus would have turned to that man and says, today you will be in purgatory. And when you get things worked out, I'll see you in paradise. That's not what Jesus told that man dying on the cross. He says, this day you will be with me in paradise. Your soul will be with me in paradise. That same promise applies to every true believer of Jesus Christ. 
The moment that you die, you breathe your last breath, your heart stops beating, your soul departs from your body. It doesn't just drift around in the cosmos. It's not asleep in the grave. It's not in some temporary painful place of, 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 uh, of, of salvation by works. It's in the very presence of God. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now having dispel some of those false notions. Let me, let me tell you, the Bible speaks so clearly about heaven. We don't have to wonder. Now granted, God hasn't told us everything about heaven. But my goodness, if we would read the Word of God and take time to study the language that God gives us that describes this, this place for, for, the, for the Lord and for His angels and for those saints who've gone on to be with the Lord Listen, heaven is not a boring place. Heaven is not a dull place. It is a powerful place in the presence of God. Let me take you back to Ezekiel. I want you to look there. This is one of the first glimpses in the Bible that we have of heaven given to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1. And you can go back, you mark this, you make a note of it. You can go back and read it on your own and take time to just look at the language and realize that this is written thousands of years ago. Ezekiel is writing in in a primitive culture. He's using language. It's apocalyptic symbolism. Some of it is. Don't let that stump you. What he's, he's doing is what you and I would do. If God opened up the curtains of heaven and revealed a portion of heaven to you and me, and we're trying to describe it, the only way we could describe it would be in the way that we see it and the way that we understand it, using the language that we have. So keep that in mind. Let me take you to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives, speaking of the Israelites, by the river Kibar, that the heavens opened, were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, and, uh, in, in the land of the Chaldeans, which would be Babylonia, by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, and out of the midst of the fire. Now, now look at the imagery, and just try to put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes, and, and what he is seeing, and, and, and understand that, that he's grasping for words. He's seeing great bright lights and colors and, 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 and uh, this is a dazzling, unimaginable view of, of, of the throne room of God. Verse 5, also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each had four faces, each had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of, of burnished bronze. They had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. How would you like to wake up in the middle of the night looking at something like that? Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went. But each one went straight forward. In other words, they didn't turn left or right. As they moved, they, if you ever watched a hummingbird, almost like a hummingbird. They move and just, you know, always facing forward. So, as in verse 10, as, as for the likeness of the faces, each had the face of a man, each 
Each of the four hit the face of a lion on the right side, and each of the four hit the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four hit the face of an eagle. Now these are the attendants around the throne of God. Thus were their faces, their wings were stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward and went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their likeness, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of torches. Fire was going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightnings. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and, and their works was like the color of beryl. And all four had their same likeness. The appearance of their, their work was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were, so, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them. For the spirits of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, they, 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 where, when these went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the, the color of an awesome crystal stretched over their heads. Now, I will explain that what the firmament, you may re recall earlier we were talking about the, the word heaven, it is often, sometimes used the word firmament. But, but what Ezekiel is describing that is above the heads of the, li the living creatures is the floor of the throne of God. Don't remember, always remember, God is always high and lifted up. No one, no creature is ever lifted up as high as God. And certainly not above Him. He's always above. So even with these spectacular, awesome creatures and all the power and majesty, above them is the throne of God. And what, what Ezekiel is describing there is this crystal, awesome crystal. And we'll see later, he's talking about the sea of glass that is described in Revelation. It's also interesting if you go back to Exodus chapter 24, at the time when the children of Israel were crossing through the wilderness, that Moses and the elders of Israel were called up on Mount Sinai where God had settled down in the midst of thundering and the trumpet appeals and the lightning and, and, and the shaking of the earth. And they, they went to meet with God. And it tells us that they actually were able to see the God of Israel on his throne and before him was a sea of crystal. So this, this sea of glass that we've often heard about in heaven is actually the floor before the throne of God. And so Ezekiel is seeing this. It's actually above the heads of the, of the angels at that time. Verse 23. And under the firmament their wings spread out straight one toward another. Each one had two uh, covered one side and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. 
When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they, they let down their wings. Verse 25, a voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads whenever they stood and they let down their wings. This is the Lord, the voice of God. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. So you see in the, the brilliant greens uh, and the brilliant reds uh, of these precious jewels and, the, and, the, and the, the awesome light that's flashing through them. And he says it's like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. That's El Elyon, the most high God. Verse 27, also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And so what you see Ezekiel experiencing in this powerful vision was the greatness of the glory of God. When, when Ezekiel is blessed by God to just peer into to just the throne room of God and the, the heavenly creatures that are there in their power and their majesty, God is revealing to Ezekiel and to you and me His majesty, His sovereignty, His symmetry, His perfection, His power, and His glory. Folks, let me tell you something. This does not describe a boring place. It's a place of the presence of God. It's a place of the, the glory of God. And Ezekiel is grasping at words that might be able to portray this vision to those who would read his prophecy. Now, if you'll take your, your scriptures now and go from that Old Testament prophetic book over into the New Testament to the last book, I want you to see the similarities in the descriptions that, that are given by the Old Testament prophet in his vision of heaven and the similarities that are given by the Apostle John in that great revelation given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, John also, in his vision that God gives him, Revelation is also given a glimpse of the throne room of God. And John picks up where Ezekiel leaves off, at the throne of God. And this is how he describes it. In chapter 4 of Revelation, if you'll look with me there, in verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must, not, which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and the one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a a jasper and a sardis stone, brilliant colors of red and, and, and green and gold uh, and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like Ezekiel saw, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads, some 
Some commentators have said that that represents the, the 12 tri- heads of the tribes of the, uh, uh, the, the tribes of Israel, along with the 12 apostles, uh, making up 24, which represents the leadership of the, of the people of God, if you will. Verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, don't, don't be mistaken into thinking that there are seven Holy Spirits. It's not. It's simply prophetic language there describing the fullness of the Spirit of God. Seven is the number of completion. So he's talking about one spirit, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul tells us we are you know, baptized by one spirit in 1 Corinthians twelve four. So there's only one spirit, one Holy Spirit, if you will. In verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, like we said in in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses and the elders saw before the throne of God, that that crystal-like sea that that was transparent and and, and reflected the, the, the light and the colors. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, were four living creatures, like Ezekiel said, full of eyes in front and in the back. And so as we, look, as we look at this description that, that John gives us, it blends some of the facts. But, but what we want to understand as we read the Revelation, as we read John's description of heaven, one thing is very apparent. It centers on the throne of God. He focuses on the throne of God. That is the primary point of reference, if you will. Ninety times in the book of Revelation, Paul, John makes reference to the throne of God. Folks, heaven, as glorious as it will be, and wonderful as it will be, and and joyful and exciting as it will be, and beautiful as it is, folks, heaven is not about you and me. Heaven is about God. Just like the life of a Christian should, should, should focus upon God, life in heaven focuses upon God. It's about worshiping Him. It's about being in the presence of God. But let me tell you something. This this scene of activity and power and majesty goes on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's constantly. There's no, there's no downtime in heaven. And we'll look at that in another message as we examine what will life be for those of us who are believers who are in heaven and, and have the pr- privilege of enjoying the, 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 the scenery and the activity and the joy and the pleasure and the fulfillment and reunion with others who've gone on ahead of us. In closing this message, I want to also talk about two things that sometimes people get confused about when we talk about heaven. And that is the present heaven and the new heaven. Go back in Psalms, if you would, in Psalms 102. Let's just look at a, a few passages that speak to this. Old Testament and New Testament. It's not a new doctrine by no stretch of the imagination. But it's something that I think would help us to understand. You might say that heaven is a work in progress. Could that be what Jesus meant when He says in, in John's Gospel chapter 14, I, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is saying, it's not done. It's not a done deal. It's not fixed. Now you don't have to worry about when you get to heaven, you're not going to get there and your house will still have scaffolding up and somebody's still trying to work on the roof. And that, no, 
No. The part that we'll enjoy is absolutely complete. But look, look with me in Psalm 102. In verse 25. Listen, now this is written thousands of years ago. Verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak. You will change them. And they will be changed. Yet, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue. And their descendants will be established before you. So, the psalmist even knew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that heaven, that present heaven, the place where God abides, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where the angels and the living creatures abide, where departed saints are right now, the present heaven, is not the eternal heaven that you and I will one day experience and enjoy. Well, as we also trek through the Old Testament, let's, let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65. Look at verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And now we'll jump over into the New Testament. If you'll look at Second Peter. Second Peter, the writings of the Apostle Peter to the Christians of that first century A.D. Second Peter chapter 3. These are not new words. Many of you, you've read these and you're acquainted with it. But it's important that we not ignore what the Scripture teaches. We want to understand this glorious place that we'll call home forever. We need to understand it as the Bible describes it. Listen to what Peter says in verse 10, chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come, and that's the day of judgment. Christ comes again. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both, in the, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The present heaven is the heaven that God created at the beginning of, the, of time. It would be the place where He would abide. It's the place where His angels and the living creatures of, 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 of heaven would abide. And after the fall of man to sin, and man would die, and his soul would continue to live, for those who put their faith and trust in God, it would be also a place where they would abide. And has been from that time for for. for Thousands of years, centuries. Whenever a believer in God passes away, this is where they go. They go to this place that is called heaven. It is the present heaven. And the souls of those who've gone on ahead of us, as we saw in John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, when Jesus says, 
I go to prepare a place for you. Indeed, Jesus has gone ahead of us. He has prepared a place for each and every one of us who truly believe upon Him, who are followers. You have a home. Your soul doesn't drift aimlessly when you leave, when it leaves your body. There is a destination where your soul immediately, just like God has designed instincts into animals to go thousands and thousands of miles to find that place of, of nesting or the place of, 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 of origin or death or whatever. Listen, your soul is programmed. It has a home. It knows exactly where it's going. And that is to this present heaven that we know of when the apostle Paul was talking there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. He understood when he said there in verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We all have a soul that yearns to be in the presence of God. And so when we die, we go into the presence of God in this present heaven. It is the destination of every true believer after our death, but it's not our eternal home. That will happen for us after Christ comes again. The day of the Lord and the judgment. And we'll talk about that. But I thought it was important because in our worship guide, we all read together, or we read in Revelation chapter 21. And let me take you back there again. Or you can look right in your worship guide. The words are right there. As, 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 as John is looking at the end of this vision... He's seeing. This is after the great white throne of judgment. And, and, and this is after, you know, uh, Christ is returned. And, 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 and this is the day of the Lord. And, and John says in, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is after the old heaven, the existing heaven, the existing earth have been destroyed, as Peter described in Second Peter. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. I know that creates consternation for those of you that like to go to the ocean, to the beach. But God has something even better than that in store. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Now let's just stop there for a second. Because you see, some of the things that we apply to the present heaven, folks, don't really apply. They apply to the eternal new heaven. And, we'll, and I'll talk about that. And, and, and so it's important. To see heaven as God's Word describes it. Yes, we will go to the present heaven. But at the day of the Lord, when God destroys the earth and destroys the heaven and remakes and renews, there will be a new heaven, just as there will be a new earth. Now, the present heaven is important. The present heaven in which we have loved ones who are already there and enjoying the joy and the bliss and the splendor and the activity and the wonder it's, listen, it's very real. I shared with you the last message, it might not be as we think. Sometimes we think if we're getting a rocket and just go straight vertical and just keep traveling, that we're going to go through the atmosphere and the stratosphere and through all the space until we eventually get so high we'll be in heaven. But understand, with God, God is not limited by space or time. Heaven does exist. It is real. It is a place where spirits live. It is a place where people live in physical bodies. But it may be in a parallel dimension. Closer than you think. 
And so, but the fact is, your soul knows exactly how to get there. And so as we look at that, the, the, the new, the present heaven, think about it. The present heaven is a heaven that was created so that God could bring man into His presence. And that's exactly what's happening. The souls of faithful men and women have been transported into the very... Pre- they are enjoying fellowship with God there in the very presence. They see Jesus Christ. They see God on His throne. They see the angels and the living creatures. Listen, it's, God brings us up to experience fellowship with Him in the present heaven. When God creates the new heaven and the new earth, it won't be an angelic realm. Because what you hear is John describing right here, God is saying, listen, on the new earth, the new heaven is God coming down to dwell in the midst of man. He said, wow. Why didn't Jesus ever tell us that? He did. In John's Gospel in chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says, if any man keeps my word, he said, and he says, if any man loves me, he will keep my word. And he who keeps my word, Jesus says, will be loved by my Father. Now listen to what he said after that. And he who loves me, and the Father loves, Jesus says, and we will come to him and make our house with him. And God will dwell in the presence of of humanity, a glorified, eternal humanity forever. It doesn't take anything away from the heaven that we have been taught and, and, and enjoy. It's that God has just, through His Word, is saying it's even more spectacular than you can possibly imagine. And the great wonder of it all is that we get to experience it firsthand. Words can't adequately describe what God has in store. But in a future message, I plan to examine what is it like for those of our loved ones who have gone on ahead? What is life in heaven like? What is it? What do you and I have waiting for us in that wonderful place that we'll call home. It's a lot to absorb. It's exciting. But the main thing is know that you know that you know that when you reach the end of your days on this earth, you have a guaranteed assurance that heaven will be your home for eternity in the presence of the Lord.